0: How true is that, that we have a testimony in Jesus Christ, that we can sing hallelujah. I love that word hallelujah because it is actually two words, hallelujah and yah. Yah is the name of God. Praise the Lord is literally what it means. When we say hallelujah, we're saying praise the Lord for the testimony we have in Jesus Christ, that Christ's testimony has become our testimony. He who died and rose again is now our story, that we were dead. And yet we have risen in Him. Aren't you thankful for the testimony in Christ this morning? If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 982. Philippians chapter 4, page 982. As you turn there, I'm going to ask very quickly, if if ladies in the room, if you just stand where you are, all the ladies, if you just stand up for a moment. um, We want to recognize you ladies. Every lady, by the way, every lady, doesn't matter if you're a biological mother or not, stand up. We just want to say to you, happy Mother's Day. Uh, we love you and appreciate you. Yes, we can give you a hand. I, I know some of you are like, well, wait a minute here, wait a minute, I don't have kids. Some of you here, you got great grandkids. Some of you got way too many kids. Some of you are, are hoping you have kids. Some of you are praying that you can have kids. I just want to say to you, listen, whether you have biological children or not, God made you unique. In fact, in the book of Genesis, when God created woman, he used a very, very special, interesting word. The word is, he said that the woman will be an easer. And you know what an easer is? Not a geezer, an easer. An easer is actually in its basic form a shelter. It's the idea that you're a nurturer, that there's a direction, a safety net that you provide to our culture. And can I say, not only to our culture, but to our church. And so I want to say to you, happy Mother's Day. Whether you're mothering children, whether you're mothering grandchildren, whether you don't have children at all, but you're mothering somebody, thank you for the impact that you have in our church. We are better because you're here. We are better because you are our easer. So thank you, women. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for all that you do to make our church the best church it can be. Can we give them a hand one more time? Happy Mother's Day. Hopefully, you got your cupcake on the way in. Uh, it, man, these things are good. I, I did not, I'm not allowed to eat those, so I did not have them, but they looked so good and they were so tempting to me. Um, happy Mother's Day to you, ladies. We, we love you and appreciate you so much. Philippians chapter 4, we're in a series that we've called Empty and we're talking about the impact of the empty tomb. If Christ indeed rose from the grave, then what impact should it have in our lives? How does it fill our lives? The problem is, for many of us, we live in a world and we walk in a society that is is prevailing in emptiness. Many people feel void. Many people feel empty. Many people feel numb. Many people feel as if they're going through the motions. And while they're yearning and searching for something to fill them, their experience, in fact, is emptiness. And so we talked about some of the ways that we experience emptiness. We talked about the frantic pace of busyness and, and how the frantic pace of busyness keeps us from the rest of the fullness of Christ. We talked last week about that very difficult topic of depression. Depression. And we said, while certainly we need doctors and nurses and medicine to help us, that depression also has a spiritual side to it, that we're called to call out to God and reflect on His faithfulness, that we call to our mind the things that God has done for us and the things that God can do in us in spite of our feelings. We looked at that Old Testament book of Lamentations where we see a reminder of Jeremiah saying that great is the faithfulness of God, and so we call that to our mind all of the ways that God has been faithful. This morning, we want to talk about another very difficult topic that, that, that really actually fills our minds, but only leaves us empty. And that is the topic of anxiety. The topic of worry. Almost all of us probably have experienced anxiety or worry at some point in our lives. I know I have. Uh, in fact, there's probably not a week that goes by that I don't feel the battle of anxiety or worry. There's probably very few weeks where there's not a night where I'm laying there, staring up into the ceiling, hoping that an answer will come to something. We all experience those moments. I remember in my life, there was one vivid moment that I remember feeling overwhelmed with anxiety, almost panic-stricken with anxiety. It happened back in 2003. My wife was pregnant with her fourth pregnancy. We had lost one, but it was our third son, Jacob, and she was pregnant and uh, she had a miscarriage in between our second and third son and so we were preparing the way to go to the hospital and she was about ready to give birth and so we go to the birthing center and we get checked in and, and uh, as she's progressing, br- progressing along the doctor comes in and says we're gonna actually induce, we're gonna go ahead, you've progressed enough, we're gonna make this thing happen it's time and so they induce her uh, time passes, she goes through the labor process and and then the doctor comes in to check on her. At this moment Everything changed. Uh, this is our third kid, child at this point, a fourth pregnancy, third child. We're experts at this point. Like if you have two, you might as well have ten. If you got two, you're outnumbered anyway. In fact, we, we just last service uh, dedicated our families uh, and kids to Christ, and it was awesome to watch these families. I said, "Hey, you might fill our church up, have more, have more, right? If you have two, you might as well have more. so so uh, here she was, she was in there, we got, we got two already, so we understand what's supposed to take place. So the doctor comes in to check to see how far she progressed. And it was in this moment that this crazy thing happened. All of a sudden, the, uh, the, the gynecologist, the doctor, jumps on top of the bed on top of my wife. She then hits a button on the side of the bed and lights go off all over the room. Immediately... I believe that every nurse in that hospital came running into that room. It was crazy. All of a sudden, it was like a scene out of ER. I mean, people just running in rampantly. In the meantime, I have no clue what's going on. I'm standing there thinking I'm an expert in giving birth at this point, because I've, well, I'm watching giving birth. And at this moment, I am just panic-stricken. A nurse throws me a thing of scrubs and says, hey, put these on quickly. And so I'm putting these on as they steer my wife on a bed out this hallway. They steer her out to a hallway, and I will remember it. will never forget this moment for the rest of my life as long as I live. We come to the end of this small little hallway, and as I'm about ready to walk into the room, the door shuts in my face and it locks. I can't get in. And they've taken my wife back into the OR. In that moment, i got to tell you, panic seared my soul. I was anxiety-filled. Worry overwhelmed me. I stood in this little hallway that felt like a a dungeon, and I walked back and forth, and I was thinking, God, what in the world is happening? Is something happening with my son? Is something happening with my wife? Is my son going to survive? Is my wife going to survive? What's really going on in this moment? And I remember walking back and forth, frantically pacing, just asking God to show something, to do something. And I waited there for what seemed like 15 minutes. And as I walked out to this other end of the hallway, I didn't want to leave this place because I was hoping they'd come back and tell me. At this point, they didn't. I notice about 15 to 20 minutes later, I look down the long hallway of of the rooms and I see my father in law walking down. And then it starts, the panic starts to to fall in more because now I realize I got to tell my father in law what's going on. And so he comes walking down and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Dave, son, Everything's going to be okay. I was like, what? At that moment, he became not an in-law, but an outlaw. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is your daughter. She's going to be dying. Your, our, your grandson, my son could be dying. We, we don't know what's going on. Like, we don't have an answer. But he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, "Everything's going to be okay. I want to come back to that story in a few moments. But we've all felt that feeling that I felt in that moment, haven't we? That feeling when our bodies begin to show sores called ulcers, where these lines are etched in our face as a frown takes over. Where we can hear the footsteps being going back and forth, pacing across the floor as we search for an answer, or, or the muffled silence of someone laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, wondering, is there are they ever gonna get out? And will they ever get to sleep? You know, in our society, in our country, anxiety truly does reign and rule. In fact, we are the worst country in the world for anxiety. Anxiety disorder is the most common in America. Eighteen percent of all American do- adults have anxiety issues A- at any given time. Forty million Americans would consider themselves overwhelmed in worry. In fact, in the last three years, anxiety disorders have jumped by twelve hundred percent over the last three years. One expert said it this way, let me paint a picture. One expert said that the average high school student today, now get this, the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient did in the 1950's. Let me me repeat that. That a high school student today has the same anxiety level as a psychiatric patient had in the 1950's. There was a study done recently by the World Mental Health Organization And they studied 14 countries around the world. They studied anxiety and worry and these type of things. You know what they found? Out of those 14 countries, the United States of America was the undisputed champions of anxiety. What's interesting about the study is the countries that we beat out to win that coveted prize. We we beat beat out countries like Nigeria, who right now is about ready to go into civil war. We beat out countries like the Ukraine, who still battles the old communist world. We we beat out countries like Lebanon, which is in the middle of the Middle Eastern mess. These countries actually have less anxiety than we have in this free country of the United States of America. We are the undisputed champions of anxiety. There is a war happening in our midst for the health of our minds. And the question is, how do we overcome it? How do we conquer anxiety? How can we beat worry? In preparation for this message, I was was reading an interesting article. It was put out by The Atlantic, and then it became a book. And it was written by a man named Scott uh, Stossel. And the the article was actually entitled, Surviving Anxiety. And I want to read what he wrote about this. This is a, 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 a journalist who battled anxiety at the age of 12 and continued to battle. And he says, I have, since the age of 12, tried in various ways to overcome my anxiety, my phobias my fears and my neurosis and here's what i've tried now listen to this this is his list he 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 writes this article and eventually a book on this topic listen to this he says i've tried individual psychotherapy family therapy group therapy cognitive behavioral therapy rational emotional behavior therapy acceptance and commitment therapy hypnosis meditation role playing interoceptive exposure therapy in vivo exposure therapy self-help workbooks massage therapy acupuncture, yoga, and stoic philosophy. I even listened to audio tapes I ordered off a late night TV infomercial. He went on. He said I also have tried medication, lots of medication. And he lists them: Thorazine, impramine, Desipramine. Words I can't even pronounce. Nardil, Buspar Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Celexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Luvox, trazodone. Uh, go down the line, serax, centrax, St. John's warts, sopidium, Valium, librium, Adivan, xanax, clotum And then he says, and then didn't stop there, I've tried beer, wine, gin, bourbon, vodka, and scotch. <laughs> now here's the point. He writes this article and at the end he highlights in bold print, he says, and guess what helped? Nothing. He wrote a secular journalist, Wrote absolutely nothing. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure we understand. We are not saying that medicine and doctors are not important. In fact, as we talked about last week, we we have a mental health team, many of them professionals out of the table as you leave that are willing to talk about how you can get some help if you feel like it's at that level. I tell people all the time, it takes just as much faith to believe that God can use doctors and nurses and medicine as it does believe that he can heal us outright. God uses people. God uses medicine. God is able to do that. And so please know we're not saying there's not value to the things that he mentions. What he's saying isn't that those things didn't help the symptoms. What he's getting at is there's something deeper happening in his soul that he can't identify. See, remember last week I said that we are a psychosomatic unity. What do I mean? We are both body and soul. And when the body is affected, the soul is affected. And when the soul is affected, the body responds. And so we find this unity. And so for many of us, we only deal with the physical, but we never talk about the spiritual. We never talk about the supernatural. And so, we're going to look from a perspective of the supernatural. How do we deal with anxiety and worry spiritually? How do we deal with this in our soul? I want to take a look here at a case study that we find in Philippians chapter 4. Paul is writing this small little letter, four chapters, not from a cruise in the Caribbean, but from a jail cell. He has been put into prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a church that he helped start. And by the way, you can read how the, book of Phil- the, the, the church of Philippi started by reading the book of Acts. We find the beginning of this. The Philippian jailer, uh, a woman who was uh, demon-possessed, and Lydia, the maker of purple. And the church begins under that guise. And so Paul starts this church, and now Paul sits in prison. So what happened? The church of Philippi now felt intense pressure. They were anxiety-filled. They were worry-filled. Why? Because they cared about Paul, and they worried what was going to happen to their church. And so Paul writes to them. Paul writes, and over and over and over again in this book, he says rejoice. In fact, the word joy shows up 16 times in four chapters. Throughout the entire New Testament, it only shows up 59 times. So the majority of the times that the word joy shows up in the New Testament, it shows up in this little small book called Philip. Philippians. Take a look with me, Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 4. Here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always, there it is, joy, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, in case you missed it, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Notice he begins this small little section, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's an imperative, it's a command, and he says, rejoice, and it's a continual action. Continue to rejoice always at all things. Continue to rejoice in those difficult moments. In those moments of anxiety, we can certainly rejoice. And then he says this very interesting line, let your gentleness be mo- known to all, for the Lord is at hand. Now this idea, the Lord is at hand, is going to be the big question, right? In anxiety, isn't the question we ask? spiritually? In my worry don't I ask the question God where are you? If God is near why do I feel the way I feel? If God is near why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? So Paul knowing that says rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is near. Now there's really two ways to interpret that. One way is based upon time. That Paul is saying the Lord is near in the fact that he's coming back. Or it's based upon space. That God is near in the sense that he's close to us. I actually think it's the second. And the reason I think that is because Paul is proclaiming this from prison and he's proclaiming it to people who are anxiety filled. And so he's saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He's there. He's in the prison cell. He's in your church. He's in your life. He's in your home. The Lord is at hand. And it's equally true he is coming again one day. But he's at hand. He is near. So Paul, with that in mind, goes right to the of the problem. Because we ask, God, where are you? He's there. So if he's there, here's the reaction. Notice he goes right to the heart of the problem. He says, do not be anxious. Number one, the problem is anxiety. The problem is anxiety. He says, and he commands it, do not be anxious about anything. By the way, anything in the word, in the Greek, means anything. It does. Do not be anxious about anything. I mean, you name it. Paul says, don't be anxious about it. And this word anxious is a very interesting word. It shows up multiple times in scripture. It's the word in Greek, merimnao. It's a very weird word to say, merimnao and it means anxiety, worry, or care, or concern. But literally merimnao is actually two words combined in one. It's the word meridzo, which means to tear, and naos, which means mind. So literally anxiety is the tearing of our mind. Uh, Anxiety is the dividing of our mind. Isn't it true that when you experience anxiety, your mind is divided? I mean, in that little hallway, in the cell of that hallway, my mind was going every which way. Was my son dying? Was my wife going to make it? What was going to take place? Who's going to take care of my other two boys? How's this going to work out? There was tons of thoughts in those brief moments that just rampantly went into my mind. And yet, in that moment, I felt absolutely empty. I felt like I could do nothing. I was overwhelmed with anxiety. My mind was so torn, I didn't know where to turn. Now, this word in the Bible is not necessarily bad. In fact, if you go back in just the two chapters, you find Paul using this word in a positive sense. It only shows up a couple times positively. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, it says... For I have no one like him. He's talking about Pastor Timothy, the young protege. I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Notice the word "concerned." Guess what word that is? It's the word ma'o. It's the word "anxiety." He says there's only this young man, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for you. But here's the problem: what begins as a genuine concern becomes a gateway to runaway emotions. Isn't that true? Worry doesn't start with a a lack of concern. Worry begins because there's a genuine concern that then becomes the gateway to allowing our emotions to run rampant. And so what is genuine becomes a runaway train. That's the image of anxiety. Anxiety begins with a good heart, but it leads to taking over our hearts and ruling our minds. It divides us. It begins to harass our souls. It begins to irritate our minds. It eventually leaves us paralyzed where we just can't respond. We don't know what to do. Now, what are the ways in our country we experience anxiety? I I want to mention three of them because I think it's so important. Because why are we number one in the world? What are the things that we worry about? And I find these three categories to be true of the way we worry. Number one, I think we worry about the the unknown, the unknown. Aren't we a what if people? Right, we constantly are what if, what if, what if, and so we're constantly trying to play out scenarios in our minds because we are desires to fix it. And so, what begins as a genuine concern becomes a way that we're trying to solve a situation. And so, we tend to look at the unknown and try to bring a what if to it. So, we ask the what if questions. We play out the scenarios. What if we have another attack? What if the economy tanks? What if I don't get married? What if I can't get pregnant? What if my job lays me off? What if I don't have enough money at retirement? What if I can't find a job? What if I can't finish my education? What if I'm in too much debt? Right, we begin to play out these scenarios in our mind. I would call this the anxiety of tomorrow. By the way, interesting, Jesus himself categorized this type of worry as calling it tomorrow. In in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, remember the verse that we looked at during the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 34, it says, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. What does Jesus do? He creates a category. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's talking about the category of tomorrow, the category of the unknown. Don't worry about the unknown. Let, Let the unknown take care of itself. Not only is it the unknown, but it's also the unlikely. We get Anxiety filled over the unlikely things that could happen. I don't have to convince you that we live in a world that's that's really building upon the foundation of unlikelihood, isn't it? You ever heard of fake news? Or might I say fake news? Some of you political people get that. I mean, alright, that was a lame attempt. Right? Fake news everywhere. Everything's fake news. And so what has happened? This is true, by the way, this has happened. Advertisers and news companies alike are beginning to play on our fears. It's called anxiety advertising and what they're doing is selling freedom from fear. So it's targeting consumers anxieties with news and products so they'll listen more. It's true. So what happens? Everybody listens to the the news station. They watch the news. Why? Because they're filling our anxiety with, hey, here's what you gotta do, gotta be aware of this, gotta watch this, and we're making ourselves ready of the unlikely. We have products that sell to us because it's looking and building on the unlikelihood that you'll ever need it. They're saying if you don't have this product you may not live you may not survive. Get this or $5.99 at the store. Right? It's building on our fears. I don't have to I don't want to spend too much time convincing you of this but do you remember, do you remember September 11, 2001? That horrific day when the Twin Towers fell the Pentagon was attacked. We were at war It's a devastating day. You know what happened after September 11th, 2001? It's very interesting to watch. Do you know the number one growth of car sales in 2001? Before that, most people owned cars. But after 2001, uh, in 2001, September 11th, you know what happened? Everybody started buying SUVs. It became the number one selling vehicle on the market was the SUV. In fact, you remember remember the Humvees? The Humvees actually took off in 2001, 2002. They raised by 20% of sales were Humvees. Why? Because people wanted to buy something in case of the likelihood it happened again. We wanted something with a military advantage, with macho bumpers, with indestructibility that even the cup holders would save the cup of coffee. Right? We planned for the unlikely. By the way, I'll show you another. Remember 2005, the bird flu? Do you know what the number one product sell that sold in the medical field after 2005 and the bird flu that came through? Remember the bird flu? Everybody's afraid their chicken had it. Everybody was afraid to eat chicken. And then we thought maybe, maybe even cows get them, and everybody was like, vegetarian? <laughs> you know the number one product in the medical field? It was antibacterial soap. All of a sudden, everybody thought, I need antibacterial soap. I need to have this soap. And so they began to push that product on us. Why? Because we had a fear fear of salmonella, fear of, fear of birds' flu. And you know, studies have been done, and they said that the the average soap bar from the 1940s kills just as many germs as the antibacterial soap in our pumps today. You look it up, it's pretty interesting. But yet it played on our fears. That's the point, is we have these unlikelies, and so we filter our faucets, we air purify our homes, we use antibacterial soap like it's going out of style, we bathe in it, in order to have just-in-case happens. We also have a category that I would call the uncontrollable. Right? There are those, those things that happen in life that, that we have no control over. and So we're a little bit worried about that. And so we, we don't want to have a heightened sense of vulnerability and a diminished sense of power. And so we worry over the uncontrollable. By the way, I was confronted with this just recently. Uh, my, uh, my third son, Jacob, got his permit and started driving. I worried over the uncontrollable. When I got in the car with him the very first time, And he's like, Dad, do you trust me? And I verbally told him yes. But I want to tell you what I did. When I got in the car with him for the first time, I thought about the scenarios of how do I take control of this car from the passenger seat. How does my leg go over the console to hit the brake if necessary? So before I got in, I was stretching, making sure my leg could go in multiple directions. Why? Because it was an uncontrollable situation. And I wanted to have some control. He just got his license the other week and has been driving the first time this past week. We sent him out by himself to drive. We prayed dearly. Uncontrollable, right? These are the things we worry about, the, the unknown, the uncontrollable, the unlikely. We worry about these things. But what's interesting about them, I want to show you this stat. It's eye-opening. Studies have been done on what we worry about in our country. And this, is, this blows my mind. Take a look at these statistics. Studies have shown that 40% of the things that we worry about actually never happen. 30% of the things that we worry about are actually things of the past that we can't change. of the things we worry about are based upon the criticism of other people, which we certainly can't control, and may probably never be true. 10% are health issues. That, by the way, when we worry about health issues, what happens to our health? Gets worse. And they said only 8% are actually true problems worthy of any attention. So let me put that in a a phrase. That means that 82% of what we worry about never happens or already has happened. 10% are potential things that could happen, and only 8% of the things we worry about are actually true things worth our attention. So we live in exaggeration and in misperceptions. So Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything. It's an imperative, it's a continual imperative. God does not command us to do something that we don't have the capacity to do. And so he says, Do not be anxious. Be anxious about nothing. When you look at life, There's nothing to be anxious about. Now Paul, I love this, doesn't just say, don't be anxious, good luck. Like, why? Because you don't be anxious by not being anxious. Just like you don't try to go to sleep by trying to go to sleep. Have you ever done that where you're laying in the middle of the night and you're just, I want to go to sleep. I want to go to sleep. You don't get to sleep by that, do you? No, you have, to, you have to confront it with something and replace it with something. And so Paul gives us a prescription as to how we can overcome the problem of anxiety. So point two, the prescription is prayer. You don't stop worrying by trying to stop worry. No, it's an inside job in our lives. So good intentions isn't going to get the victory. So I need something more. How do I get a secure mind? I go to prayer. Notice what he says. You're not be anxious about anything, but... In prayer and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And here's the command. Let your requests be made known to God. Bring the request to God. He says the answer, the anecdote, the prescription is prayer. Now notice the wording. Be anxious about nothing. Pray about everything. Anything that we could be anxious about, pray about. Bring it to God in prayer. Here is the replacement. Here is the picture of the solution. Now, before we go any further, I know what you're thinking. We think, at least I think, Dave, is it always the answer in the Christian world to read your Bible and pray every day? Is that really the answer? Yes. It really is. If we as a people really engaged the scripture, and we as a people actually prayed, like it would transform our lives. I mean, I believe that wholeheartedly. If we just spent some time in the Word and we spent some time in prayer, this is what keeps coming back always over and over again. This is the way we grow in, in Christ. And so he says, pray. Here's the solution is to pray. Let your requests be made known to God. But I don't want you to miss this. Notice the pattern of prayer. Notice the pattern. There's a pattern that he lays out for us. Notice it. He says, bring these requests to God. Make them known. Here's how we do it. And everything by prayer. Now when you and I think of the word prayer, we immediately think of bringing it and casting it to the Lord. But that's not the word prayer. The word prayer here is the Greek word prosuké, And prosuké literally means to speak out, but not to ask. It means to speak out. So the image, by the way, this word is used for uh, a derivative of the word worship. To bow down. The idea is that we come to the Lord and we actually speak out who He is. We actually proclaim who He is. We remind ourselves of who he is. We worship Him. Isn't that what worry is anyway? Isn't worry actually worship of something that we think we need or we don't have? If we move our worship, could it change our worry? So what does He call us to? He calls us to pray. Prayer is the greatest form of worship. It is an intimate form of worship. It is saying, God, Worship and worry cannot be in the same heart, and so I'm going to bring you worship in spite of my worry. So you want to know, by the way, what you worship? Look at your worries. Worries will reveal our worship, and worship can overcome our worry. It begins to diminish our worries because they both can't exist together. He goes on, not only pray, so I speak out who God is. So I'm praying, and I say, God, I know you're faithful. God, I know you're good. God, I know you're you're a God of peace. I know what you've done on the cross. I know what you did in the empty tomb. And then he says, pray and supplicate, supplication. The word supplication is actually the word to ask. It's a little stronger than that, though. It's not asking just loosely. It's the idea of asking almost to beg. I come to God. I say, God, this is you are. I speak it out. And now I say, God, I'm asking you to do this. I'm begging you. I need some help here. I've got this situation that's overwhelming me. It's, it's, it's holding me back. I don't know what to do, we ask. Notice how he narrows the answer. Supplication concerns a very specific request for a special need. It's the moment we cast our care on God, as 1 Peter says, because he cares for us. And then he says, notice it, this is eye-opening. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, this is eye-opening. I don't know about you, but I don't thank until it's done. Is that true? Like, like, I don't say thank you until something is accomplished. That's the natural tendency of thank you is you don't say it until it's done. But here Paul says, go to the Lord, pray, supplicate, ask, with thanksgiving. Why would I thank God for something he hasn't done yet? Because I'm not just thanking God for what he's going to do, I'm thanking God for what he's already done. See, I'm replacing my worry with the, with the fact that, God, you've already done these things. Like yesterday, you were faithful, God, and you got me through, and so I can trust you in this moment. God, yesterday, you were able to to uphold me in a situation I couldn't uphold. I remember that, and so I hold on to you. What happens? He begins to replace this fear with trust, this fear with faith. He begins to give me a greater picture of gratitude in what God has done and is able to do. And then he says, let your request be made known to God. By the way, I love this because prayer is not getting God to come to our request God is already in the presence of our request. What it's doing is bringing the request to God. It's saying, God, I'm not trying to inform you. I'm trying to be conformed into what you want from me. See, I bring the request to God. God's already in the request. He's already at work, in the midst of it. Here's the point. Paul says that prayer should be our first resort, not our last response. It should be our first response, not our last resort. See, See, fervent prayer... Dispels anxious care Fervent prayer is able to dispel the anxious care of my heart Why? I'm trusting God, I'm bringing it to God I'm leaving it in the hands of the one that can hold it Now Paul, in great goodness and faith here, brings up another part of this He goes, here is the prescription, it's prayer But this prescription doesn't come without promise That's the second thing we see, is the promise Which is peace It's peace Take a look at what he says about this prayer Let your request be known to God, verse 7 and the peace of God which surpasses all human knowledge, that's the word there, it surpasses all that we can hold to, it will guard our hearts and minds, our hearts that are overwhelmed with emptiness, and our minds which run rampant, it will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you want to know one of the themes of the Bible, I believe it's this idea of peace. Peace actually is a word that's repeated 400 times in the Bible. I think God understands that what we're looking for so drastically is peace, don't we? We're running around, we live on earth, we're living on earth, and we're trying to find something to bring peace. Why do we take vacations in Ohio in the wintertime? Because we want peace from the cold. Why do we root for the Buckeyes so vividly here and passionately? Because we want to win. Can I get an amen there, uh, Buckeye fans? Uh, yeah, I owe uh, yeah. Uh, uh, why, why? And we can get serious, right? Why do we turn to addictions? We're trying to find something to bring peace in the midst of a chaotic life. We're trying to bring something that will just give me some relief, give me some fun. By the way, not all those things are bad, right? Rooting for our teams, playing sports—they're not bad things. W- having a house, having money, having a job; those things aren't bad. Relationships are not bad. Addiction obviously goes off course, but. These things are all meant to, we look for them to bring us peace. So, so here Paul says, here's what peace looks like. Now, if we were to study this out, I love the fact that peace follows prayer. You know why? Because what God understands is that my mind in the midst of anxiety is too full to be able to receive peace. So I have to drop off my care in order to have a mind that's empty enough to receive the peace he wants to bring me. And so I have to set aside what's taking up room in my mind in order to receive the peace in my soul. So he says this peace. By the way, I want you to notice, we don't have time to really develop this, but I want you to notice it says the peace of God. Paul uses peace in three different ways throughout his letters. One is peace from God which is a peace that is a gift from God. He opens his letter here in Philippians and most of his letters. And then we have the peace that's with God, so peace from God, peace with God. Peace with God is when we we, we go from being an enemy to being a friend of God. When he saves us, he brings us into the family. We now are not enemies, we're we're now family. And then we have this peace of God. Peace of God is where we live in the presence of God in the midst of our circumstances. That his peace is able to calm our hearts. So, as Paul's writing this, he's saying, listen, you already have peace with God. You already have that portion. It is yours. But the peace of God comes to those who are willing to surrender to the fact that God is in control. When we surrender to God's presence, all of a sudden, that peace can overwhelm us. You ever had, met somebody who, in the middle of chaos, is absolutely peace-filled? That only comes from God. It's beyond human imagination. How in the world can they do that? Because they understand the presence of God in their lives. They have peace with God that flows the peace of God. The peace of God that rules their hearts. The human mind can't, can't attain it, but God gives it. And then he says, it will guard us. Now, I love this because this idea of guarding is really appropriate in Philippi. Because Philippi actually as a city, was where Roman soldiers settled after retirement. It was a retirement community mainly to Roman veterans. And, and so when he writes this, they all understand the idea of guarding. It's the word sentinel. And what it has the idea is when you would capture a city you would surround the city with soldiers so that no one who's supposed to keep out gets in and those who are inside can't escape. So he says, this peace will actually build a fortress around your mind and the things that shouldn't be in won't get in and the things that shouldn't get out won't get out. It becomes a fortress for our minds. Peace protects our hearts. It protects our minds. It stands at the gate and says, no, you can't enter. It stands at the gate and says, you're not leaving. Now, Paul takes it one step further in the replacement. Because what is it that we need to be in our minds? Right, I pray, I get peace, now I gotta backfill my mind with something. So notice what he says. Verse 8, finally brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, and then he says the, the imperative, the command, think on these things. Fourthly, we find the plan. The plan is that we need to think. The human mind will always settle itself on something. And that thinking, where it settles itself, usually determines our feelings, our emotions, our hearts. It always will settle itself. So, he calls our mind to eight filters to live by. He says, Think on these things. What is true? What is just? What is pure? What is lovely, of good report? Now, what is he talking about? He's not just talking about going outside and looking at creation. As beautiful and lovely as that is, that's not what he's getting at. He's not just talking about attending an Ohio State football game. As good as that is. And certainly as victorious. I think he's trying to reflect to us that we have to think about the only thing that that is all these things. These eight qualities, there's only really one thing that fits every category. And that is Christ. That is the gospel. It is the idea that we set our minds on what we know to be true, that Christ came to earth, that he died on a cross, that he rose again, that he loves us, that he offers his grace. Now think about this. If I'm anxiety-filled, I pray and say, God, take my burden. He gives me his peace, and now I fill my mind with all the things that God has done for me. What happens? I'm replacing what I'm overwhelmed by with what I've been overwhelmed with. His cross. His resurrection. His resurrection. His faithfulness. I'm thinking on those things that are true, that never fail. That are just and always right. That are pure and never dissatisfying. That are excellent. That are worthy of praise. I would dare say this morning, if we get the right who, Jesus, we won't worry about the what. That's Paul's point. If I get the right who, I won't worry about the what. Let me ask you this morning, where is your mind running rampant? Where are you overwhelmed with anxiety? I love the way he ends. Notice verse 9. This you've learned, this you've received, this you've heard, this you've seen in me. Practice them. Put these to practice. Pray, supplicate, thank, peace, think on these things. And then he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you notice the bookends of this, this text? The Lord is at hand. He's near. I need peace. When I pray, when I get peace, now all of a sudden the God of peace that we think is distant is right there. When we pray, when we focus on God, when we fill our mind with things that are true and right and lovely, what happens? All of a sudden we become aware that he was there the entire time. The God of peace is present. The, the, God, the peace of God will protect. The God of peace will be present in our lives in that moment. This right here, what we've just read, is a crowning of achievement, of recovering from anxiety. Instead of living gripped by fear, held captive by the chains of tension and dread, we release our preoccupation with worry, and we find God's hand at work on our behalf. He becomes the God of peace to us who runs to our aid, changes us from the inside out, relieves the tension, alters our mind, and begins to overwhelm our burdens with his goodness. You know, I remember hearing this story about a lady who was waiting at a bus stop with a big bag, a bag that she could barely lift up. She had this suitcase, and she was waiting for the bus, and eventually the bus came, and she got on the bus, and she stood on the bus holding her suitcase just like this, this heavy suitcase. A gentleman came over to her and said, ma'am, you you can put your suitcase down. There's an empty seat right here. Just lay it right here. And she looked at him and she said, you know, I'm just grateful that this bus is able to carry me on the journey, but I don't think it should carry the suitcase. I don't know about you, that sounds absurd. We go into airplanes and the first thing we do is put our luggage where it needs to be. We go into a bus and we make sure the seat is for our luggage more than ourselves. But for many of us, we carry around the baggage of anxiety where we are on a journey, a bus trip, to eternity. On a bus trip to the kingdom. God has confirmed that in His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith in Him, we have peace with God. Yet many of us are not living in the peace of God. We have peace with God, but not the peace of God. And we're carrying around the luggage of anxiety, the luggage of worry. And we're carrying it around and we're saying, well, He's good enough to give me the journey to the end, but He can't carry my burden. You know, it's interesting. That day, 2003, when my father-in-law came over to me and put his hand on my shoulder, with great confidence said, son, everything's going to be okay. What I didn't know was that he had stopped by the room that we were supposed to be in first. And then a nurse came up to him and said, hey, can I help you? And he said, I'm looking for my daughter. And she proceeded to tell him, well, uh, your grandson, his the cord came out first and it was in a dangerous location and this cord prolapse was shutting off his supply, and we need to get in there and do surgery immediately. And he says, he asked her, he says, Is she okay? Is the, is the baby okay? And the nurse said, Yeah, everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. So here I am in this hallway, dungeon, pacing. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? What do I do? What do I do? Who's gonna die? Well, my father-in-law had some information that I didn't have. He came in and he put his hand on my shoulder, and the confidence he had was in the information he had been given. See, the baggage he didn't have to carry. Why? Because He already knew the answer. Let me ask you this morning. God is the God of peace, do you believe it? God is the God able to carry our worries that we can cast them on. Do we believe it? Are we carrying around baggage we don't have to carry, or do we believe God keeps his promise of peace? Take a listen to this song as we end. Ponder these words. Reflect on where you're at in the, the journey of anxiety and worry And know there's freedom. Listen to this song for a moment.
1: You will stay true even when the lies come. When my thoughts don't line up, I will stand tall on each promise. Jehovah Shalom There's a peace far beyond understanding Siege and all anxiety bows in the presence of Jesus, the keeper of peace. And peace is a promise he keeps.
0: Peace is the promise he keeps. We call out to Him. Maybe you're here this morning and and you don't have peace with God. Today could be the day where you take that step of faith, where God awakens your heart and and changes your life from the inside out, where you can have peace with God, no longer running from Him, running toward Him and in Him, and for Him and through Him. As you leave, there's a place called Next Step. We have some people that are praying for you, love to pray with you, love to talk with you, not to embarrass you, but to show you how you can absolutely know for certain you can settle the anxiety of your eternal destiny through Jesus Christ there are many of us you know Christ but you're walking around carrying the baggage of anxiety and worry it's gripping you it's leaving you empty and paralyzed today could be the day where you drop it and say God I give it to you yeah that anxiety word may maybe a lifelong battle it may be there in your life its presence will be known but that we don't have to carry it spiritually that we can turn it to God and he fills us with peace we can think on things that are true and lovely and just and pure and of good report excellent praiseworthy things and trust that God will then fill us with what is right in every situation that He will not fail. Would you stand with me as we pray, as we close this service. If you're here and maybe you want to talk to somebody, you want to know maybe some next steps as you leave, right in the back of, of the auditorium there, there's a table as you, just as you exit. they got some information there for you. We have our mental health team ready to talk with you. We love to chat with you about how we can help you. This is not only a safe place to find hope, but a place to get help. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we all battle anxiety and worry at some point in some fashion. God, we thank you that you have answered, that you are Yahweh Shalom. You are the God of peace. You're the Prince of Peace who came and died on that cross and rose again, not only to give us peace with you, but the peace of you that now can rule our hearts, that peace that is undescribable, unimaginable, that peace that, that is beyond our human grasp, that our skill and our knowledge can't attain, that you give to us supernaturally as we surrender to your presence in our lives, as we think on the things that are true, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, good report, praiseworthy, excellent things that are found in your great gospel. So God, may we leave in peace. May we leave not with baggage, but with with the fullness of who you are. We love you. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Thank you for our church. In your name and for your glory, Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Love you guys. God bless you. May we go in peace.